first chapter. So in the book of Colossians, um, there are many things that Paul writes about, but the main theme is Jesus comes first. Now, we, we think about that, and you know, that should be obvious in the, in the life of someone that says, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. What does Christian mean? It means little Christ. So if we are little Christ and we're imitating Jesus himself, then it would make sense, at least um, theoretically, that Jesus should come first, right? If he is the head of the body of Christ, like we studied last week, if he is the creator of all that we know, all that we can see and all that we can't see, if he is the, the one who breathed the breath of life into us, then it would make sense that as our creator, we should do what he created us for, correct? You would think that would be obvious, but it's not. We, I don't know about you guys, but before I started walking with Jesus, I had walked according to what I wanted to do way longer. And I still have walked longer following the ways of the world and doing what I wanted to do at this point in my life than I have under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so there's these habits and these patterns and these ideas that are intrinsically weaved into me that are against God still. There are things in my life, thought patterns and things that I enjoy that are still not in line with the character of God because I've walked in the world for way longer than I've walked with Christ. And so the question becomes, how do I deal with these ideas? How do I change these patterns? And so the Colossian believers had heard the gospel that Jesus saves, that he's the Son of God, that he died on the cross, that he rose again uh, on the third day, being brought out of the grave. They believed in that. They trusted in that as their faith. They knew that there's no hope under heaven for us to get to heaven apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. They'd heard that from a man by the name of Epaphras. He was the leader in the Colossian church. But here's the deal. Other people came along and they started teaching them philosophies. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I still struggle with sin. I'm not perfect yet. And so because of that, sometimes I have this desire deep down in me. I know I keep messing up and I want to change. And so I start looking and I say, Lord, How do you want me to change? How how am I supposed to live this life that you've called me to? I can't do it on my own. And so we pray, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me direction. Teach me. Uh, feed, Feed me the bread of life. There's something I'm missing here that I need in order to better myself and be more like you. So here's the problem. We pray those things and we know those things. We know our own hearts condemn us and show us that we need someone to guide us through this life because we keep messing up. But here's the deal. There are others than just the Lord that want to give us advice on how to fix things. And the Colossian believers were in a culture just like we are, where there are shelves and shelves and shelves of self-help books and offices and places where we can go see psychiatrists. And there are all kinds of different philosophies on how to make your life right. But they won't necessarily get you to where God wants you to be. They might change your outside behavior a little bit, but they can never change your heart. That's what the gospel does. It transforms not just our outward actions. It doesn't make us good moral boys and girls. Uh, The gospel changes my heart. It removes the old dead heart that's been on sin, and it replaces it with a God-breathed 
born-again believer heart that wants to please God first and foremost. And so the book of Colossians, the main point is that Christ should have preeminence. And he says that in verse 15 through 18 of chapter 1. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, meaning the exact representation. He is the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created for Jesus Christ. Now, that's pretty amazing because I see the things in my life many times and go, wow, Lord, thank you for making this for me. I enjoy it. But what the Bible says is that everything was created for Jesus, for his purposes. And so that kind of has to twist my, my worldview a little bit. But then he says in verse 17, He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Do you know the world would completely implode without the power of Jesus holding it together? Think about this. If you take an atom and you split it, do you know what happens? That's what they call an atom bomb. You're taking atoms that are held together by the power of God, and man has figured out a way to take those things apart. And when they do, it unleashes a chaos that has devastation for miles and miles. It throws debris into the atmosphere that is still there to this day from the times atom bombs have been pulling atoms apart and making explosions. So if you think about an atom bomb and the amount of devastation that it causes, now think about the one who holds it together. If you're an equal and opposite reaction, right? Uh, that's what Newton's law was, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so if you're pulling apart atoms and it creates this big boom that destroys entire cities, think about the power that holds it together. And we see the effects of what holds it, that blows it apart. But think about the power that holds that together that would create such an explosion when it's pulled apart. And so this is the God we're talking about. This is Jesus. And so he says there, uh, reminding us of the power of God, in verse 18, it says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things Jesus, it says he, but it means Jesus, may have the preeminence. What is preeminence? Preeminence, I looked up the word because I didn't know what it meant, means to be first in rank. So if you think about the military, who has the preeminence? The commander-in-chief, really the president. But under the president, there's the generals, and then there's, you know, you can keep going down. The, the, the person in the squad that has the, the squadron leader title, he has preeminence. doesn't matter what anybody else under him thinks. He's in control. He's in charge. Another word, uh, that preeminence, to be first in rank or influence. So think about that. If Christ is to have preeminence, if he is preeminent, he created all things, all things were created for him, he has a reason that they were created, and therefore he should have the influence. He should have the first influence. Now, I think about that in my own home, and I was praying over this. Lord, do you have the most influence in my home, or do I? And I am ashamed to say, but I have to realistically say that many times he does not have preeminence in my home. I do. And I know that because many times 
I say things or say things must be done, and I haven't really prayed about them. I am a commander in my home, as it were, but Jesus Christ has preeminence in my life. And so if I am the leader, then I need to check with my leader before I say anything is going to be done. And if I haven't prayed about it, then I really have no authority. Think about it. Jesus was walking along the way, and this this soldier comes up to him who is a, a legion leader. He is the commander of that legion. And he comes up to him and he says, Jesus, I know that you have the power to heal. I want you to heal my servant. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come. He says, no, 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 no. You don't need to come to me. You don't need to come to my house. I know that you're under authority. I've watched you heal people. I know that you get an authority that doesn't come from you. It comes from God. He says, so I know that if you say it, it's going to be done. And Jesus says, wow, I've never seen any faith like this, even in Israel. And so he says, let it be done according to your faith. And so this, this soldier of a leader, a commander, leaves, and he goes home, and he finds out that this man he wanted healed has been healed. And then he even asks him, he goes, well, when did it take place? And sure enough, it was the same time that he was talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, let it be done. And so, but he said to him, I know that you are a man under authority, and therefore what you say will be done. Because Jesus, that soldier recognized that Jesus wasn't acting on his own behalf. He was acting on behalf of the authority that had been given to him from his father. And so me as a father, I need to act and I need to lead my family with Jesus as the first in influence or rank. And so we as believers need to look to Jesus as the first as influence and in rank. So then in verse 20, he says, it, he, he says there at um, verse 19, It pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Blood, many times if we think about it, if you watch a bloody movie, because there's battling going on of some sort, whether it's hand-to-hand or whether it's a bunch of armies coming together battling one another. Blood is a sign that there's a struggle and that one side is killing the other because blood is where our life comes from. The life is in the blood. That's what Leviticus says. And so if there's shedding of blood, you don't think of peace. You think of war. But he says here that he made peace through the blood of his cross. Blood came through, or peace came through the blood. And so through Jesus' death, we now have peace with God, the creator, the one that's has, supposed to have first influence. He was killed, and by him being killed, we have peace with God because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for our sins. And I wrote down here that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it actually says, without the shedding of blood... And he's referring to the Old Testament law. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sin. No removal of the guilt of sin. Our sin makes us guilty before God and puts us as not just like, hey, we slightly messed up, but our sin makes us enemies of God, at war with Him. And if you're at war with God, who wins? God does. He is preeminent. He is bigger than us. And so in verse 21, he says this, And you, he makes it more personal. He's talking about the overarching theme in verse 20, that he's made peace through the blood of his cross. And then he says, makes it personal, verse 21, and you, and he's going to tell us an important truth 
We need to remember this every day, even as believers. You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind because of your wicked works, that's where we came from. You ever talk to somebody and you can tell they don't remember where they came from? Especially in a small town, right? We have people come back, whether it's for a reunion or, hey, don't, you forgot where you came from. You know, I've heard that many times. Who, who do you think you are? You're from this town just like me. You think you're better than me. Well, Jesus has that same thing in mind. He always wants to remind us, not for condemnation, but to keep kind of perspective. Remember where he came from. He says, You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind because of your wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If you are holy and blameless in the sight of God, it's because of Jesus and what he has done. He accomplished it. Then verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, if you continue in the faith, we have actions that we are required of us in order to continue in the faith, trusting the Lord, following his ways, letting him have the first influence, letting him tell you no. We get upset when our kids won't listen to us when we tell them no, but when God tells us no and we disobey, we kind of just let it roll off our shoulders. What's the big deal? And so he says, but you once were alienated, but God is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So what does it mean to be reconciled? I, I think I just kind of went over that word last week and didn't really define it. But reconciled means to do what happens when we have a bunch of debts and then we go and pay them. They're reconciled. The account is balanced. You know, if somebody owes you money and then they pay you back, your debt, it's reconciled. You're brought to one again. And so what Jesus has done for us is he has settled the differences that we had between his character and ours. He's reconciled our debts. But the word there, reconciled, I looked it up in the Greek and I can't say it. It means completely reconciled. Not on the way to being reconciled, not, hey, I'll make payments. I'm completely reconciled in the sight of God. He looks down on me. You know what he sees? Someone perfectly righteous. Can you guys even imagine that? In the sight of God, because what Jesus has done for us, we are perfectly, perfectly, our debts are settled. No debt. Can you imagine that financially? If each one of us had no debts, woohoo! We'd probably go out and get some the next day, right? Hey, I got all this free money, you know? That, that's, at least that's how I am. Maybe you guys aren't that way. You know, hey, I got, you know, I got a disposable income. What's that? You know, but God, because of what Christ has done, we are free, free as a bird if you want to go 70s on it. We are completely set free, no debt, zero, financially settled with God, the supreme creator of all, the one to which we give an account for our sins. We see him, we're set free. We go to him, he says, hey, what, what, why do you deserve to be in here? Because of what Jesus has done. I don't know about you guys, but there are many days where I'm ashamed that I'm not more happy about that. Because I don't know anybody that's debt-free, especially spiritually, unless they had no Christ. You know, I don't, I don't fall in the, the thought pattern of, well, God knows my heart, and on that day we'll settle it. No. If that's your theory, you will not be settled. He's already settled it. And if you don't believe that, then you're not trusting in Christ. 
And so uh, I kind of camped on that for a little bit, but that's an amazing truth, isn't it? So here's the other deal. For us, that's great, right? Hey, I'm set free. I'm going to go do what I do. But we're surrounded by people that have debt against God, and he's going to require of them what sin deserves, and that is his wrath upon them. Their wrath isn't shielded. So if you know someone that doesn't know Jesus, it's not just sad that, they, you know, it's not just, well, you know, maybe they'll get better one day. No, they need Jesus. And you know Jesus. Your responsibility is to tell them, I'm set free and you can be too. I'm a beggar who found bread. We're all starving to death. I found bread and I'm a beggar. I'm going to tell other people where they can get bread. Dude, where'd you get that bread? Just down the street at the food pantry. You know, except this is a bread people don't even know they have a need of. This is the bread of life. Not just sustenance for a day, but for eternity. Eternal life. Sins forgiven. You see people walking down the street looking at their shoelaces and they're depressed. It's because they don't know Jesus, who is the giver of all peace, the sustainer of life, the one who sets us free from our guilt and shame and doubt and worry. Tell them that's our responsibility. So, let me ask you do you believe that your debts have been set free? And number two, Do you know that other people around you haven't had their debts set free? And are you telling them they can? They don't have to go to a seminar. They don't have to do 10 steps on how to be more holy. They don't have to prove themselves to God. Jesus did it for them, and they have the opportunity to receive that free gift just like you did. So in verse 23, Paul says this, If indeed you continue. So we must continue. And then he says, If you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, deeply rooted, It's not just enough to be alive, but we must send our roots deep into Christ. And he says, And are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. He's warning them, stay away from these theories, these philosophies, these systems of religion that will pull you away from Christ. If you start trusting in your own works again, even in slight ways, it pulls you away from your joy about what Christ has done. So then he says, This message that you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So verse 24, we're finally to our passage for today. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul is rejoicing in suffering. Again, he's writing this at the same time that he wrote Philippians from jail. He says, And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to you, excuse me, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. See, these Colossians were being tempted away from the faith by this group called the Gnostics. And these Gnostics, they were to have known a deeper meaning They had a deeper knowledge of the faith. And so they would come along and say, it's good that you trust Jesus, but you need to know these things too. And if you come to our deal, we'll tell you all about it, and then you can truly be saved. And so what Paul's getting ready to reveal is, number one, the message has already been told to every creature. There's nothing hidden. It was a mystery in the Old Testament, but it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And then he says... um, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. What is a minister? It's kind of a highfalutin word, I think. 
A minister means a, a, a servant. A servant. So if you want to change that word in your Bible, cross it off and put, I became a servant. Paul's not saying he became this high, up in the church guy that's above everybody else. He's saying, I was called by God, according to his calling, to be a servant. You know, uh, Jesus actually said that to his disciples. He says, he who would become great amongst you must become the servant of all. If you want to be the greatest? And they were asking that question. Hey, who do you think is the greatest in the 12 of us? You know, and they were going back and forth. And, and Jesus, knowing what they were talking about, looked back to them. He goes, if you want to become the greatest, become the servant of everyone. Become everyone's servant. Become a doormat in some ways. Become the one who does everything for them. Kind of like moms do for kids, right? Become their servant for the sake of Christ. He says, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. They're telling you that they're going to reveal this truth to you that's never been revealed. And Paul says that's uh, hogwash. It's already been revealed. It's in Christ. Everything that we need for salvation and for continuance in the faith, it comes through Christ. And so he says, it's been revealed to his saints. He says to them, verse 27, God willed, he desired to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, who is the hope of glory. So Paul says, I'm willing to suffer to share this message with you. I'm in prison, and yet I have hope. That should be a message in and of itself. But then he says, here's the deal. This message that was hidden from ages and from generations, it's now been revealed to the saints. And so I want to go with you to another uh, person who wrote about this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. And there's so many parallels I've already found in 1 Peter and in Colossians. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. The Apostle Peter writing the same thing that Paul did. See, Paul always wrote at the beginning of his letters, he'd write, Paul, an apostle, excuse me, an apostle, an apostle. It's any, anything's possible if you're an apostle, you know. But he says, every time he writes a letter, in like seven of them, I think, he says, Paul, an apostle of God according to the will of God. But Peter doesn't write that because, I don't know about you guys, but Peter it's like everyone knew he was an apostle. I mean, he spent time with Jesus. He messed up the biggest. If you look at the gospel accounts, Peter's name is mentioned a gajillion times, and that's a number. But what he says is, in verse 10, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, it, like a miner who digs for gold. If you look in Proverbs chapter 2, he talks about wisdom and how men seek after gold and silver, and they'll dig a hole, and they'll climb down in it, and they'll pan for it, and they'll do everything they can to obtain it. These prophets of old in the Old Testament, they were doing just that. They wanted to hear the Word of God. They wanted to present the Word of God. And as they did that, what we find is that they dug diligently, and yet, in the Old Testament, they, they still didn't quite know everything that God was trying to show them because it was hidden from them. God gave them these words, and if you look at the book of Isaiah, there's 60 chapters, 59, I can't remember, there's a bunch. <laughs> but in the book of Isaiah, there's all these prophecies, and some of them they understood, but some of them they realized there was hidden treasure in there. And so these prophets, it says, 
Um, it says they searched carefully and, and who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, meaning now it's been revealed to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things that angels even desire to look into. So think about this. In Christ have been given us to us the hidden riches of wisdom and of knowledge for salvation and for faith. And what he says there is that the prophets of old who heard the word of God and spoke it to the nation of Israel, they didn't get it all. And then he says in that last verse, as if just to say kind of, you know, very, he just says, oh, and by the way, things that they didn't understand, also the angels desire to look into it because they don't quite understand it. So God has purposed to reveal this message to us and give us the riches of the glory of his grace and reveal to us what it means. And the angels and the prophets didn't even get that much in the Old Testament. And, and so as we think about that, I want to turn to Isaiah and show you just a couple of instances where this happens. The Old Testament prophets had so much wisdom to give to them that they couldn't even understand it all. Isaiah chapter 40. You guys with uh, electronic Bibles this morning are probably burning me up. It's like, hey, I got, I'm there already. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah speaks to them. He says, Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So they're going through a time of judgment. And then verse 3 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so there, Isaiah giving a message to them, but what we know from reading the New Testament is that when John the Baptist came on the scene, this is what he proclaimed. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he literally was in the Judean desert crying out to these people. And people were coming in droves from Jerusalem and from the nation. And they were coming to him and for looking for answers because there had been the silent years where God had not spoken to the nation of Israel through the prophets. And so on comes the scene, to the scene comes John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Make Make way for the kingdom of God. Prepare your hearts. Get right. Repent and be baptized. And so he preached this baptism of repentance. And to repent means to agree with God and say, I'm wrong. He is right. I need to change. God doesn't change. And so as an act of doing that, they were baptized in water, which is a symbol of death. They had to die to themselves in their own understanding and be raised up by God in forgiveness. They were cleansed in the water. They were doused. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says what? Repent. 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he provides the Holy Spirit at his ascension. He says, I'm going to the Father, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you by fire. He will purify your lives. And as he purifies your lives, he will change your understanding. He will give you a willing heart to serve God and to please him. So that's the beauty. And that's all found in Isaiah 40. That should encourage you in the Old Testament that there are, are truths where Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. And then in Isaiah 53, verse 4, just a couple of pages over, Isaiah speaking says, Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for this purpose, our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the discipline for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Think about that. Jesus was wrongfully accused, taken all the way to the cross, and yet he never once said, This isn't fair. Isaiah wrote that down, not knowing what he was writing. Led as a lamb to the slaughter, trusting the one who was sending him to slaughter his father. And as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. The transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a leader of the Sanhedrin. He was buried with the wicked, according to God. And he was stricken, but with the rich at his death he was buried. Excuse me. He made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. So Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He had this huge garden. And if it was the one I went to, it was pretty nice. There was fountains, there was places to contemplate, there was all this beautiful shrubbery and, and plants, and it was just a beautiful place to be buried. He was buried among the rich because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall... See his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So he says there, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has him put him to grief when he has made his soul an offering for sin. Jesus was made an offering for our sin. So my main purpose in reading to you all that was that these philosophers were coming to these believers and saying, hey, you need this deeper knowledge and what we need to know. And what Paul was telling the Colossian believers was, it was a mystery, but it's not anymore. This glory, the, the riches of God's grace have been revealed to us. The Old Testament was concealed with all this rich information about the Savior. And in the New Testament, it reveals everything that was concealed. Everything. And you notice over and over again, these New Testament writers, they just quoted Scripture in the Old Testament to reveal this is about Jesus. And so here, back in Colossians chapter 1, to them, verse 27, God willed to make known that what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. <laughs> 
Now this, to Jewish believers, would be a slap in the face, perhaps, because many of them believed in order to become saved by God through Christ, you had to first get circumcised and follow the law and, and be a Jewish believer. You had to become a Jew. And what Paul says is, no, that's not the case. So he says there, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you, that's what we sung about this morning. You know, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that we have to live for Christ. And then he says, it's been revealed to the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. He says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. The power I have, the power which, with which I speak, the authority I have, it all comes from Christ. He's the source. But he says there, him we preach. Paul wasn't preaching a philosophy. Paul wasn't preaching a religion. He was preaching about a person. Jesus never came to save us through works or through a system. Jesus came to save us as a person comes to save someone who's in trouble. You know, I've read so many stories lately about war, and there's one in the, the novel uh, where it's about the guy we call American Sniper from the movie, Chris Kyle. And he uh, gave many accounts where these guys would be selfless, and they would, you know, one guy actually saw a bomb thrown up into where they were sniping from, and that bomb landed amongst them, and there, was time, there wasn't enough time to get it out. And so he threw himself on it. He threw himself on the bomb. Now, Jesus has thrown himself on the bomb of God's wrath that we deserve. It's not like, oh no, somebody threw a bomb at us. We threw the bomb at ourselves by sinning against God. And God has sent his son to throw himself on the bomb. And we make a philosophy out of it, and we try to make it a, you know, a piece of information to tell people. But really, when you tell people that Jesus saved you, and if you're willing to trust in his sacrifice, what you're saying is, if you're willing, God's thrown himself on the bomb for you, so you don't have to die. And if that's the case, if you're willing to trust in that, then you have a new friend. Because that person who saved you didn't die when the bomb blew up, he actually rose from the dead. You have the opportunity to have a relationship with him now. And, and I love that because uh, he didn't just leave us here. So he says, Jesus Christ is who we preach. We're telling people about a person that they need to know personally. And then he says, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Paul's calling was to be a preacher and a teacher. But he says, my style of preaching is what some might not like. Some people like to be taught. Nobody likes to be warned necessarily. You know, have you ever told your kids or have you ever been told by somebody, hey, you don't want to do this because it's not going to go well for you. Now, if you are bent on doing that, when they tell you that, you don't like it because you're already planning to do it. Hey, you don't want to do it that way. And many times, you know, even whether it's working on a car or building your house or, you know, building a fire or cooking dinner, you know, somebody comes into the kitchen, and they go, hey, you don't want to cook it that way. It's not going to work. You're like, I read the recipe, you know. But this is more important than that, though. God has sent us people in our lives to speak to us the words of wisdom from Scripture to warn us and to teach us. And if someone comes along and cares about you enough to warn you, listen, 
even if it causes you to be uncomfortable and not like them. Listen, because God still speaks and he warns us when things are going to hurt us. And if we won't listen to him, he'll send a person to say it. We won't, we won't listen to them. He'll give us, sometimes he'll give us dreams and visions. And if we won't listen to that, what are you going to do? The word of God is meant to correct us where we're wrong. So, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, in order that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. He's fulfilling what God's given us to do. He says there in verse 22, if you look up there, that you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has in his body of flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He's thrown himself on the bomb to present you holy and blameless in the sight of God his Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's done it for that purpose. He saved us already. Positionally, we're all that will ever be in Christ. But practically, there's still stuff getting worked out. And so we haven't arrived yet, even though positionally we're right in the sight of God. But then Paul says his gift is to preach Christ, warning everyone and teaching them in all wisdom, that we may, Paul writing, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. He says, I warn you in Christ. I warn you with his words so that you may be presented perfect at the day that you meet Jesus face to face. So he's just continuing what Jesus had already started. Verse 29, he says, To this end I also labor and I strive according to his working, which works in me mightily. So the word labor there actually means to toil to the point of exhaustion. Toby was working in the garden yesterday. I guarantee he toiled to the point of exhaustion. I saw a picture. He looked exhausted, you know, and we do that. We work towards something we want to do. We just did that a couple days before he did, you know, and I was toiling to the point of exhaustion. Paul says, that's great. Do everything that you do to the glory of God. That's Colossians chapter 3. But in salvation, many times we neglect to toil to the point of exhaustion so that we may be presented and so that our families may be presented perfect and holy before the Lord. We have a responsibility. Paul says, I know what I'm called to do. I know how I'm called to do it. And to this end, so that I can be faithful to the prize that God's provided for me, he says, I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So he uses two words, labor, which I think of labor, I think of childbirth. Childbirth is a labor to the point of exhaustion, to where there's nothing left and you got to dig deeper. That's a, that's a labor of love right there. It's a labor of survival. That We raise our children with a labor to the point of exhaustion, especially in those first years where they can't get up. And then later on, we labor to the point of exhaustion. We stay up late wondering if they're going to get home on time or if they're gonna, something's going to happen to them while they're out late. We labor to the point of exhaustion. And then he says the word strive, striving. The word strive means to struggle, to compete for a prize, to contend with an adversary, and to endeavor to accomplish I like that. So Paul is struggling to compete for a prize. He wants to be faithful to God, and he knows he will be rewarded with that for that. And then he says, according to his working, which works in me mightily, the strength that comes from the Lord. If God gives you something to do and you labor to the point of exhaustion, guess what? 
God's going to supply the energy you need to do it. God will supply. And then he says, strive, another word for that is to contend with an adversary. When Paul preaches this message to the Colossian church and to everyone, he says, I I preach it to everybody. I warn non-believers too because there's wrath coming upon them that I was going to be a partaker of until I got saved. So he says, I warn non-believers, there will be a judgment. I used a phrase the other day at work, and something was taken forever. And I used it haphazardly, but I meant it. But because people use the name of Jesus kind of vainly, someone was like, I can't believe you just used the name of Jesus. Like I was cussing with it. But they said something. We were talking about, I forget what it was, but a project was taken forever. And I said, at this rate in this project, Jesus is going to come back before it's done. And somebody was like, I can't believe you just said that. And I was like, well, Jesus is actually going to come back, and it could be at any moment. What do you mean you can't believe what I just said? I was meaning it in reality. Like, Jesus is going to be back any day. By the time you guys get done with this simple project, he's going to be back. So it's not going to matter anyway. And they were, anyway. But this person was supposed to be a believer. And so when I said that and they were taken off guard, I was like, don't you believe Jesus is coming back? Like, he is coming back. He's going to come on the clouds. No one's going to miss it this time. He's going to come back in all of his glory and there will be judgment on the nations. There will be judgment on those who do not believe. There will be judgment on us first. What have you done with what God has given you? The whole first part of this book is showing us that we've trusted in a Savior that can give us everything that we need to accomplish everything that he's given us to do. Christ is first. Do you live like it? Christ is first. Does your life show that? So Paul says, to this end, he says, whether you guys do or not, I labor striving according to his working. I labor. I work to the point where I'm completely exhausted. I strive to the point where I, can, I know without a doubt that I will gain the price that God has promised for me if I will remain faithful. He says, for I want you to know, verse 1 of chapter 2, what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches and the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the Father, in God, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so as you are trying to work out your own salvation, like we studied in Philippians, with fear and trembling, and you're looking with wisdom, how do I do this? How do I live for the Lord? How do I let Him change me? How do I do my part so I can be faithful and and strive to win the prize that God has for me that is according to the upward calling of God? How do I do it? Don't be turned aside by worldly wisdom. Don't listen to people that don't believe in God. Don't listen to people that have theories that are not according to God's plan. It will only lead you to frustration and sorrow and shame. Trust the Lord's wisdom. Mind for it, like Proverbs chapter 2 says. Mind for it as if you had a mine shaft full of silver and gold, and all you had to do was go down and dig and labor and toil to the point of exhaustion. Labor for it, but realize that they're not hidden in this world. They are hidden in God himself. And if you seek his face, he will give it to you. But that doesn't mean that you won't have to strive and labor for it. Dig deep. 
You know, we always talk about in sports, if you want to do well, you've got to dig deep. You've got to find that strength within. Well, you, can't, you can't dig deep enough in yourself to find enough power to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You have to dig deep in the Lord. And if you will, you will be richly rewarded. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths this morning. I pray that they would be more important to us than anything in this life. We're only here for a short time, and yet this short time that we're here has so much influence on us. Let us not be corrupted by the ways of this world. We are in the world, no doubt, but we're not of it. We have a high commander who has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, not in a doctrine, not in a declaration, but in a person. So, Father God, please, pour out your Spirit upon us. Give us the faith to look to Jesus for all the wisdom that we need. Help us to take his wisdom before we take anyone else's, to have first influence. And, Father, please, help us to remain faithful, deeply rooted in Christ. Help us to be fruitful. Help us to be witnesses. And Lord, help us to truly live out the hope that we know that we have. When we find out that we're hoping in something else, remind us in those moments where we're the hungriest. (laughs) You're disappointed because your hope is in something else other than me. And Father, at that moment, give us the humility to repent and to turn back to you and to truly place our hope in you. We love you, Lord, and I thank you for this time. Lord, bless us as we go out with this song. In Jesus' name, amen.